Hello and welcome to It Takes Courage to Tell the Truth. This podcast features interviews from women around the world focusing on birth, business, sustainability, health, sex, death and money. I'm your host, Eleanor Bancroft. In this episode, we talk with Orly Miller. Orly is a registered psychologist and local Byron Bay woman. She is a mother of two small children, and her experience working with individuals and couples range across issues to support them with healing, enhanced well-being, mindfulness-based group therapies and practices. She is dedicated to exploring the safe space and nurturing and healing our community. In this episode, we talk with Orly about things that we can do during the time period of COVID and lockdown to ease the strain on mental stress, to be able to free ourselves up and to learn effective communication in our relationships. Hi, Orly. How are you? Hi, Ella. I'm feeling good. How are you? Really good, babe. So you are like our local Byron Bay psychologist. What what led you to um, psychology? Like what was kind of your, I guess, journey with that work and understanding that you wanted to um, dive deeper into this space? I feel like I've always really been interested in people and in consciousness and in different levels of consciousness and the ways that our minds work. I feel like I've always sort of, since I've been a child, kind of have been tapped into this notion of different layers of psyche and it's something that I've just always been interested in exploring so it just felt like a really natural progression for me to go down that path and the more I got into it the more I realized that I just really love channeling this sort of energy of self-introspection and you know helping to pe- helping people to really feel into themselves and their deeper knowing and deeper parts of their psyche as a way for healing you know i really believe that people can heal themselves and you know i try to help them guide themselves towards that path and it's something i really love to do and feel really honored to do Mm, And I love that you said that, that people can heal themselves because I think so often um, we really get taught by society that we're broken in some way and that we need to be fixed by other people. But really it sounds like what you do with your work is just like stand aside people and, and give them the tools in order to, you know, really, really make sure that they are aware of their own autonomy in that space and empowerment that, you know, you're guiding them and not fixing them. Absolutely. I feel like what I do is really create a space and I create sort of a held container so that people can feel held in a space in order to do their self-work, which they may otherwise have more resistance to doing if that space wasn't initially created for them. Mm. But they're really doing their their own healing. The process is coming from within always. And with your work, is, is it kind of mind, body, spirit, or are you focusing more on the, on the mind? Well, that's a very interesting question, Ella. Um, the way that I see it is they're not necessarily separate and compartmentalised in that way. My view is a little bit more holistic. 
Um, interestingly, I don't know if people are aware of this, but the word psychology actually originally means study of the soul. So it, it, the question sort of is quite complex in terms of it assumes that there is a differentiation between mind and spirit um, and body. Uh, my view is that it's sort of all quite interconnected in a very deep way that we're sort of, we're a whole person and they function not in sort of different forms, but rather in symbiosis. Mm, yeah, I totally agree. I just have often found sometimes in certain therapies that I've done, it's been so heavy on the mind space mm -hmm. and not really um, big picture or whole picture, but it sounds like you do big picture holistic um, therapy, which is really beautiful and I think really needed as well since sometimes we only scratch the surface and don't really understand that there's an entire iceberg underneath us that needs to be looked at also. Absolutely. Yes, that fascinates me. The whole notion of the unconscious that's buried deep beneath what we can see externally in people's behaviours and what they say. And currently we're in a pretty interesting time. Um, we're recording this podcast um, during COVID and um, kind of in the thick of lockdown, really. Mm -hmm. And um, this is the first time actually in history that we've ever dealt with a pandemic um, while having social media mm -hmm. and I was thinking about that this morning before I rang you because mm -hmm. I, how do you think things like social media and the internet kind of affect our our mental state during a pandemic mm. Well, I guess like any tool that we have, um, you know, it, it really depends on how we relate to it. Um, that will determine the effect that it has on us. So, you know, in the same way that we can say this of anything else that we're using or engaging with, you know, we can use it in a way that enhances our health and wellness and sense of connection and feelings of intimacy and love and support, you know, or we can use it in a way that doesn't do that and, and sort of instead, you know, supports these kind of processes that are perhaps a little bit more toxic for us, like avoidance and numbing, um, you know, things that can actually make us feel more disconnected from ourselves and each other. So, again, it's really gonna be dependent on our awareness around these tools and how we are choosing to engage with them. That's gonna determine what they do for us and how they make us feel. There are like any suggestions that you can think of of how to like protect ourselves from, I guess, traumatizing content or um, just protecting our mind really from um, overload of information. Yes, well, I recently just wrote a blog about this. So it's something that I have um, been giving a lot of thought to. Um, you know, fundamentally, we are bombarded with so much stimulation, just constantly um, from the external world. You know, we have so much that we have to think about and that we have to hold. And so already with our actual reality and existence for a lot of us our psychic space is so full 
that we barely have energy or time or space to sort of go beneath that into some of our inner processes. So when we are actually adding to that, adding to the uh, stimulation that we already have by watching shows or, you know, reading lots of things on the internet, just exposing ourselves to a lot more external stimulation, I think what that does is it takes up psychic space and psychic energy for other processes that we could be doing. So particularly um, around things that may be disturbing or have sort of content that's violent or dark you know which there are so many things on the internet now that have that and we're so desensitized to it in a way but I think what people don't realize necessarily is that even though when we're watching these things or absorbing these these content you know our conscious mind um has the ability to make a distinction between, you know, that's not happening to me, that's on the screen, that's somewhere else or someone else. But our unconscious, you know, our pre-conscious and unconscious part of our mind actually doesn't have the ability to make that distinction. So it's sort of like whatever we're watching or whatever we're being exposed to, it, it's as if it's happening to us. So we can have these pre-conscious traumatic reactions to things that we're viewing on a screen without even realizing it. And what that means is we have to then process whatever we're ingesting. So later on, you know, when we're dreaming or, you know, when we're trying to be with ourselves in meditation or all sorts of different spaces where we might go inward, what's happening is, we're having to actually process these little traumas that we've put in, that we've ingested throughout the day. And what that's doing is it's, it's taking up space that we could have otherwise been processing things that we really need to process, things that are really happening for us internally and externally, because we don't have limitless psychic energy, you know, in the same way we have a certain amount of physical energy and once we've used that up for the day, we need to go to sleep, we need to rest. It's the same with our psychic energy. So mm. I think it's really important for us to be aware of that so that we can really feel into what, what we would like to be ingesting, what we'd like to bring into our psychic space, you know, with remembering that we're going to have to process it later. And so does trauma normally, even the, the minute trauma of, say, watching a scary movie, does that normally get processed as um a priority over say whatever else you may be experiencing throughout the day well again it's sort of hard to 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 say in that regard because it, the unconscious mind works in a very different way to to that which is conscious so in our waking consciousness you know i might be able to say you know my name is Orly, I'm a mother, I'm a psychologist, I'm 30. You know, we know all of these things about ourselves. But when it comes to unconscious knowing, it's not so well formed. Like we're not actually able to, to really know what's down there. And so what happens is when more information gets pulled into our unconscious or pre-conscious and, you know, subconscious minds it all just gets blended together 
So we don't really know in terms of what it's prioritizing, but what we do know is that all trauma that comes in, we are trying to deal with. Because like I said earlier, you know, fundamentally we as humans, you know, generally speaking, we have this amazing, you know, innate capacity to work always towards healing ourselves. So the body is always working to heal itself you know, our immune systems and cellular repair and all of that. And psychically, it's the same. We're always working to heal ourselves. So what that means is any trauma that we have, any sort of things that are disturbing or causing us disparity within our minds are always working towards coming to the conscious realm so that we can work towards healing it. So often that will come up in our dreams, for example, because that's a time when sort of the sensor, the guard of what usually determines what's allowed in and not allowed into our consciousness is relaxed. And therefore, we're able to see a lot more into what is lurking beneath in that unconscious space and often in the form of different symbols for us to then interpret when we wake up. But it certainly is going to be something that we're going to need to process however the trauma comes in. I just find that so fascinating because I hate scary movies and it's probably, you know, something built into me just knowing that. But I also grew up in a family where we would scare each other a lot. And it's interesting to watch as this has taken over into my adult life and in my home where I live with my best guy friend, we also scare each other. But recently, um, after I read your blog post, I started to realize how I'm always kind of in a state of preparing to be scared or shocked in my home, which probably (laughs) is causing me like a little bit of anxiety. Um, What does trauma or, or living in that kind of space actually do to us as humans and our health so i guess when we talk about living in a state of readiness um what i can relate that to is what you know in psychology is called the fight or flight response stage Um, so it's really a, a stress state that we're living in and Basically, what it does is it's, it's such an ancient state. You know, it's been with us since the very beginning um, of human evolution. Um, and when we're in this state, you know, we're really functioning from a place in our brain called the limbic system. So physiologically, what that means is a lot of adrenaline is pumping through us, um, cortisol, which is the stress hormone, So, yeah, too much of cortisol and adrenaline and those kinds of chemicals through our body, you know, has been shown to cause a lot of health issues, sort of diseases, heart disease, um, and also psychological issues too, like anxiety, chronic anxiety and things like that. Um, But I guess also just on a more sort of day-to-day level, moment-to-moment level, when we are functioning from the limbic system, when we are in this sort of really reptilian, ready to fight or run away kind of space, you know, we don't actually have access to a lot of our human qualities that were developed later. So in evolution, our frontal, prefrontal cortex sort of came later. And that's responsible for things like empathy, compassion, 
you know, just bliss, um, connectedness, intimacy. So we're not able to really be absorbed in those beautiful parts of being human when we're in this other space of fear. So it's, it's really a trade-off. And interestingly, what they found is if you ever want to get really quickly from the stress space, from the limbic system to the prefrontal cortex, um, there's a couple of really beautiful ways that you can just fast track that journey. And one of them they found is gratitude. So you can just stop for a moment, take a few deep breaths and feel into some things that you're really genuinely, authentically grateful for in your life. And boom, you're in the prefrontal cortex. Mm, wow, that's an amazing tool to have. So that's for, that's for stress or trauma or anything that's kind of related to high anxiety, which is that kind of more um, reptilian space of our mind. Yeah, the reason that I say, you know, the reason it's called reptilian is because it, it was during the reptilian part of our evolution that that limbic system was formed. So if you look at lizards and snakes um, and other reptiles, you know, they're very much in that space a lot of the time, sort of fight or flight, you know, in survival mode. And what makes us really fundamentally human uh, this, you know, is this capacity for compassion, empathy, deep intimacy, connectedness, communication. Um, and these parts of us um, came later in our evolution. Mm. Nice. And so as well as gratitude, what other ways can we kind of process trauma and stress during this period? What are um, some other suggestions that we could kind of bring into our daily practice or um, just even, you know, moments in time for those who have children who may not have a lot of time out there? Yeah. So another thing that's going to fast track our journey from the limbic system to the prefrontal cortex is mindfulness-based practices. Um, so, you know, mindfulness has become a really big buzzword and so much to the point that people, like, don't even know what it means anymore because it's used so much. But basically all it means is really being aware, really aware of just one thing at a time. So that can be absolutely anything. You know, it can be your breath, it can be a sound, it can be a feeling, um, it can be tactile, you know, you could be touching something, just any sense, any sensory item, you just really focus your attention on that one thing. And what that does is it brings you into the present moment. The limbic system, the stress response, it's not bad. It's actually an amazing tool. It's kept us alive as a species for thousands of years. You know, if we didn't have this, we would have all died out a long time ago because what it does is it activates when we're in danger. So it senses that danger is near. It activates, it gives us this incredible burst of energy, this adrenaline, to then run away or fight which then enables us to survive and continue on with the species. The problem becomes when the response is being triggered in the absence of danger, in the absence of threat. And it's very much a modern phenomenon, anxiety and chronic stress. I mean, because we're living in a time where, you know, generally speaking, we have a lot less threat and danger 
than when we did at the beginning of our evolutionary process. You know, we don't have saber-toothed tigers running around, you know, trying to get into our cave and attack us. You know, the, the stress that we're experiencing these days is more like I've got a deadline for work that I haven't prepared for or I've got a really difficult conversation to have with my partner that I'm feeling anxious about. So these things that are making us anxious and stressed, they're very valid in doing so, but they're not going to kill us. They actually, our life is not usually in danger. So the response, the stress response is actually out of proportion to the threat. So we're getting this huge burst of physical energy because in the ancient times we needed that to run away or fight. But now it's not so physical, our threat. It's more psychological. But because we're ancient brains and this system, this stress response is ancient, we're still getting that physical rush, you know, but, but no way to, to release ourselves from it. So I guess, you know, to answer your question, you know, because firstly, I just, I don't want to demonize the stress response. It's an amazing mm. system that we have, but we definitely need to deal with the physical energy that we're getting from stress and anxiety in some way. Um, so, you know, mindfulness practices can be great to actually bypass the stress response because what it does is it brings us into the present moment. We look around and we say, oh, there's no danger here. I'm actually safe in this moment. I'm safe. And when we say that to ourselves, you know, and, and a way to communicate that to our nervous system is by breathing deeply because we don't breathe deeply when we're in threat of dying we breathe really shallow that then we say oh, i'm safe and then we don't have to get that stress response but if we've already got it and the adrenaline's already pumping through then you know my suggestion is use the energy do some exercise have some amazing sex you know um jump up and down i don't know use the energy you've got to move your body dance you know things like that and so doing things like that that helps to move that energy if i somehow suppress that energy is it likely to come out with some kind of disease within my body yeah i mean i'm not generally an advocate of repression in any way i'm very much of the sort of way of thinking and feeling that when something's alive in us we need to address it we need to be with it and we need to respond to it because it's part of us it's it's what's happening now and it's you know it's our portal into self-development and into ourselves and connectedness so i wouldn't suggest repressing anything really unless it's a really aggressive urge you know that's going to hurt someone else um, i think that we repress a lot as a society in general and, and i think it is doing us a lot of damage physiologically and, and psychologically. Um, so again, I mean, I guess the two options that, that I would, you know, suggest in terms of the stress response is if it hasn't really entered your body yet, try to use mindfulness practices, gratitude, things that can bring you into a calm space where you're able to actually be in the present moment, look around and realise there's no threat here, I'm okay, you know, then we can bypass that whole response. But if you're already in the grips of it, 
and you're already feeling that energy, that anxious, nervous, stress energy pulsing through your body, yeah, don't just swallow it and push it down. That's not going to have very good consequences for you, for your health and wellness. Um, definitely use it. Use the energy. Um, you know, when you do exercise, when you move your body and move the energy, you feel afterwards different. And there's a reason for that. There's an evolutionary reason for that because you're like, okay, I've got this burst of adrenaline. I've used it. Now I'm calming down. I'm moving back into my parasympathetic nervous system and calming so my body knows, okay, now I'm safe and I'm okay. So that's a good way to move through the process as well. Yeah, I recently watched this interesting documentary of uh, how a deer went through a process of trauma. It was being it was um, being attacked by a predator, and it went into freeze mode. And then afterwards, when the predator left it for some reason, it didn't end up killing it. It kind of moved on after the chase went down. Then the deer stood up and just like it almost looked like it was just like shaking its whole body from the experience. And I know like shake therapy is a really big thing in terms of releasing trauma or working through emotional states so it makes sense to you know move that energy and not trap it in that way yeah absolutely shaking and convulsing um after or during stress um is something that's like cross species so yeah we see it in animals um and we also see it in ourselves actually it's a big part of um post-traumatic stress disorder you find a lot of shaking that can accompany um, traumatic memories and again it comes back to what I said at the beginning of this conversation you know the body the mind the soul all of it is so amazing in the sense that it's always moving towards healing itself there's a deep inner ancient wisdom and knowing of how to actually move what we need to move out of our bodies so, you know, the body just knows how to do things and often we just need to actually get out of its way and allow ourselves to, to move towards that space of healing. And trusting more in our own sense of self, even if we haven't been taught these things, you know, that's where mindfulness really can help as well, you know, because you tune into your own needs and desires rather than listening to what everybody else is suggesting could be your, a cure to you. Absolutely, absolutely. Just being, you know, limiting our external stimulation so that we have the psychic space to tune into what we authentically feel and desire and can really be with that and know that so that we can then learn to communicate our needs and feelings and move more freely in the world. Hmm. I'm interested to understand a little bit more about the difference between fear and stress because you know uh, currently in this time especially with lockdown and a pandemic that's you know arising and and just I, I feel like everybody is a little bit more stressed and a little bit more fearful right now just because there's a lot of ambiguity around the disease and um just generally ambiguity around everything when we're going to kind of come out of this um, space again? Like, how is there a difference within stress and fear and the way that we metabolize that? Well, they're very, they're very connected. I mean, fear triggers the stress response. So stress, as we talk about it, as a physiological process, is a very 
um, defined process in which there are certain parts of our brain and nervous system that are activated during the stress response and very particular hormones and chemicals that begin to circulate throughout our body, usually, as I said, to give us energy to survive the, the threat. Um, and I guess fear is, you know, fear can be rational, you know, it can be, I'm afraid that I'm going to get this disease and die, you know, uh, because people are dying from it. And especially if you're older or you have, you know, you're immunocompromised or whatever it is, or fear can be, you know, seemingly irrational. I'm in my own home. I'm completely afraid of the dark. Um, you know, there's no real reason to be afraid of the dark. I know I'm safe. I know that just because it's dark, it doesn't change anything. But for some reason, I'm afraid of the dark. So this is, I think, when also the unconscious processes um, come into play. And it's a good opportunity for us to look deeply into what is it that I fear and what associations can I make with this fear and what can I learn from this fear. And often in um, psychodynamic therapy, Sorry, I'm just okay. You're a mama. We yeah, all understand. I can, <laughs> I can hear it. Yeah, he's just crying. Um, I might grab him in a second, but yeah, often in psychodynamic theory, um, you know, we talk about fears and particularly fears that seem to be irrational or, you know, um, don't quite match what you know the response doesn't quite match the actual threat. What they talk about in psychoanalytic theory is that it can often cover up a wish. So fears and wishes can actually be quite interconnected in the world of the unconscious, but it's a wish that we may have repressed because we've been told that it's shameful, um, that we can't have it, that we're not allowed to want it. So therefore it becomes a fear and, you know, that can also be projected onto the other so a very basic example would be you know for example i have a wish to be sexually liberated and be able to be with whoever my heart desires but i repress that wish because i've been told that that's not allowed if i'm in a monogamous relationship and then i project that um as a fear onto my partner and i say i bet you're cheating on me huh so that's quite common and and when we work backwards in that process what we actually find is the person who's accusing and who's fearing that of the other is actually it's a whole unconscious process but it's actually this deep inner wish that they themselves have but they've repressed it so it's being banished into the unconscious and we can't really do anything with it until we're able to make it conscious then we can work with it as raw material now like relationships and communicating like this is probably a time where people are spending more and more time with their family with their loved ones when they're normally you know going to be at work for 36 to 50 hours a week and they're finding themselves at home how do people kind of process these things that are probably coming up for them i'm sure there's like you know a lot of kind of internal frustrations that occur and i know like my previous partnerships like i really needed time and space but we've now been forced into a living situation where it is actually quite difficult to get that time and space from each other even if it's just like oh I need to go and like be with my girlfriends right now but I can't do that you know 
what kind of like tools or um, guidance would you offer people who are at home who are dealing with, you know, relationships with, with anyone, their loved one, it could be their best friend, their mother, um, just people that they're in same households with? Yeah, so this is a very interesting question. I've been thinking about this a lot as well. Um, I think what's happening really is people are responding with a lot of variation to this situation. You know, on one end of the spectrum, I think there are some people who, you know, are just finding this to be such a welcome relief and blessing. You know, they're so used to being apart and being out in the world and just not having any time to be together or to drop in with themselves um, at all. And they're feeling like, wow, you know, this is such an amazing opportunity that I have to just not do things out there and just be in here and just be together as well in the relationship. And so that is fostering a lot more connectedness and intimacy and deepening of of communication and love and desire you know than than they were experiencing perhaps even for years before because there was just this avoidance that was going on um you know because of the, the way that their lives were were being organized so that's great and to to those people you know enjoy would be my advice Mm -hmm. (laughs) um and then I guess you know there's you know and and we probably all have a little bit of of each of these you know that's coming up for us but I think you know the next response would be that you know we're so used to avoiding each other We're, we're so used to having these paradigms that we're living in that allow us to have so much space from each other um, that we're finding it hard to actually be in this enforced togetherness. And so people are perhaps, you know, who are unwilling to actually drop into that space for, for whatever reason, and there are multiple, um, you know, are actually just attempting to continue their processes of avoidance of intimacy, but within the same space. So that can look like, you know, just tapping out from your partner um, engaging in behaviors that enable you to have psychological and psychic space um, from your partner while in the same room, like just being on your phone or reading a book, something that sort of communicates to your partner, I'm physically here, but I'm not with you mentally and I don't want to be. Um, so that can be frustrating for the other, particularly if they're actually wanting to connect. Um, And then there's just, you know, straight up conflict, which is just inevitably going to happen. It happens in every relationship and it's, it's healthy. You know, conflict is important. It's it's part of what we need to develop our relationships. Um, But I guess what the conversation needs to be around is how we navigate the conflict. Um, So we may have a feeling that comes up of anger or frustration, um, or a need, you know, just a need that's coming up. And I guess how we're going to communicate that to our partner or our housemate or whoever we're with, you know, is going to be um, very much a determinant of the effect of that communication. So, for example, you know, you know, my partner might come up to me and say, you, you never give me any time by myself. 
I always have the kids, you know, um, you never take them when I need you to. Okay, so what my partner's saying is I need some space. But the way he's saying it, all I'm going to hear is he's criticizing me. Mm. And so generally what I'm going to do is be defensive. And I'm going to say, what are you talking about? I always give you space. You're, you're wrong, right? And what that's going to do is then just cause counter-criticism, counter-defensiveness. And then again, we're locked into this toxic way of relating that's not actually going to be helpful for anyone. So a piece of advice or a suggestion would be if you have a need, you're feeling the anger rising or frustration, you know, that feeling is, is signaling to you that there's a need that's not getting met. So that's healthy, you know, say thank you to the anger. And then the next step is going to be how do I communicate this so that I can get my need met? And the answer is if you can, I would say with gentleness. Um, and focusing on the need. So, you know, that same example would be my partner would come to me and say, hey, my love, I'm really feeling like I need some space right now by myself. Would you mind taking the children? And then I'm a lot more likely to meet that with gentleness and say, yeah, I can really hear that you're needing that space. Let me give that to you with love. So mm. then that's going to then foster a dynamic of communication with gentleness, compassion, love, empathy, and it's just going to be a better outcome for everybody. Mm. So really addressing the situation as it arises, rather than trying to kind of suppress that emotional state until it gets to a point of bubbling, you know, which is so often I think like we're, we're so in the tendency to people please just as human beings. We want to feel loved by people. We don't necessarily want to assert our voices um, for fear of being too naggy or, you know, for fear of wanting too much. But actually by suppressing that, we can do more damage in the long run, especially with the ones we love. I completely agree completely agree with everything you just said such an interesting time period to understand that everybody communicates so differently and how we can be effective in that communication is really by understanding and and really listening to to what people are saying because in shared small confined spaces this is often when you know we can step on each other's toes or, or not say the things that we want to say um you know, for example, my me and my partner have moved in together during the lockdown period, and um, the way that she processes her emotions, it's it's um, really in, a, in an experiential level. Like she really feels them deeply, and I'm in a more intellectual, analytical kind of level of the way I feel my emotions. And sometimes we meet, and I'm trying to kind of, um, I guess, like psychoanalyze or, or intellectualize what her experience is where she just actually needs to be in it and feel it and you know the greatest lesson I've learned from COVID and increasing the amount of people that I live with is is really the only way to have good relationships is, is to truly listen to what people are feeling. Yeah absolutely I mean in any type of relationship and partnership um, and intimate partnership in particular you know really honoring each other's differences and allowing them to balance you is, is a beautiful thing. You know, the opposite of that is to get into a 
my way is right and your way is wrong or or even my way is wrong and I want to be more like her you know that you know everyone's right we're all different and we're all right and what makes it beautiful is the variation so when you can say I'm analytical and she's more experiential in the way we process emotions um you know how beautiful that we're different let's learn from each other let's be with each other in that process to help balance the relationship Mm, definitely and and I feel really privileged and lucky to actually have a relationship that does um want to cultivate good communication skills but because some people out there who are maybe a little bit less um privileged and fortunate you know to be able to have partners that even know these sorts of things domestic violence is is definitely something that's probably on the rise right now and um you know being at home with partners in in tricky situations what what can people do in those situations or what tools or resources are there out there and and i i say specifically for women because i just think that there is a higher rate of domestic violence so i'm going to talk more to that space anyway just being a woman and you being a woman but what can women do kind of if they are dealing with things like domestic violence in this current situation yeah so yeah so this is a big worry at the moment um for a lot of people and i guess um yeah when this kind of natural conflict that arises um becomes abusive that's when communication has completely broken down. There's, there's actually nothing that can be done in the space of tuning communication to, to help the interaction go better because it's actually come into a unsafe space of abuse. Um, you know, often this can be because there might be underlying, you know, mental health issues, um, anger issues, impulse control issues um and and you know with that sort of thing actually there's nothing that can be done with with communication or with sharing so really what has to happen is you know women children um men you know whoever is actually being victimized um and who is in danger physically psychologically sexually emotionally um you know, the best thing that, that they can do is actually leave that situation, which can be incredibly difficult, particularly in domestic violence um, relationships for multiple reasons, but that is ultimately the best thing that you can do is, is leave that situation and, and go somewhere that's actually safe um, and where you can get the support that you need. Uh, just for people who are local in the Northern Rivers, I work on a board for a um, women's housing, which is called Women Up North, which deals directly with families, women and children who um, need shelter specifically from domestic violence. They're a good resource for people to look to and, and other resources in the area as well. Um, we have one in Byron as a shelter. Shift Shelter is also another women's collective um, helping women in need out there. Um, and there are services that are essential that are happening right now um, if people don't have family and friends that they can call on. Yeah, there's also the, the Neighbourhood Centre in Mullum um, is, has some really good services there. 
for, for women and children escaping domestic violence as well. So there are support networks in place. Um, and even if it's just a matter of the first step, just mentioning it to somebody else and allowing them to help you get access to that service, um, you know, just, just do something to remove yourself from the situation, even though it seems really hard to do, it is possible and, and necessary. Yeah. I think, um, you know, in this time specifically, there'll be a rise in mental illness, regardless of, of how long the lockdown is in place. Uh, a study that uh, the University of Toronto did um, with the SARS pandemic that happened in 2003, and Canada was one of the countries that got hit outside of Asia, like quite largely with it and they had to do a lot of quarantine and a big study came out saying that longer durations of quarantine were associated with an increase of um, PTSD symptoms and also anxiety and depression. Um, what, what, what are your thoughts on, on, on kind of self-isolation and us as human beings? How important is it for us to be actually physically connecting with each other in a time when we can't? Or how does that play an effect on our psychological health? Yeah, well, human connectedness, human interaction, community, um, you know, these are fundamental um, to our psychological well-being. So, you know, we evolved um, with community, like we evolved to seek human connection and to live amongst each other. Um, you know, natural selection sort of dictated that those of us who had the capacity to connect with community survived. And therefore, it's actually fundamental to our health, not only psychological, but again, physical, because, you know, we're whole beings, so we need one for the other. And human contact and community is vital and essential to our well-being which is why you know there's no doubt that psychological issues are going to be coming up and you know sort of more severe in times of isolation because we need the connectedness to feel well one thing that you mentioned before is uh you know technology as a way to keep connected so, and not having had this in any other pandemic. So I think we're at an advantage in that regard, that we do have the capacity to continue to sort of be with each other, at least in the virtual space. And I think that that's been really helpful, but of course it's not the same thing. And I think it's also really important to remember that not everyone has access to these platforms. You know, a lot of the older generation and, some people that just haven't become technologically savvy, you know, I just think complete isolation really. And I think that that can be incredibly difficult um, in a lot of cases. Um, and also, you know, not being able to get the continued support and help that you need and that you've usually been getting is also something that can definitely add to the psychological distress of the communities. It, is there a difference in the way that we recognize um, connecting with people, say, via a screen, to real life? The same as our bodies can 
you know, process trauma through a movie um, on a horror film or if we're actually experiencing that horror. Is, is there a similarity? Like, do we pick up in the same kind of love spaces, I guess is what I'm asking. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, there's intense amounts of oxytocin that get released when we are eye gazing, you know, with a loved one, um, hugging, touching, connecting in a real human way. Um, definitely. And I'm sure we're all missing that to some extent, especially those who are isolating alone. Um, but certainly we can get some of that also through a screen. I mean, even just having a conversation that's inspiring, that excites us, that makes us feel connected. You know, our brain, our body, our spirit is is involved in that and definitely feeling the effects of it. So we can get dopamine, we can get oxytocin, um, albeit in smaller doses perhaps, but it's still definitely there. I mean, I think it's important to remember, again, like I said before, that to, you know, the unconscious mind, you know, it can't tell the difference between something that's here and something that's there, something that was and something that is um, something that's happening to me and something that I'm watching or imagining. So even if we close our eyes and we fantasize about something we want to happen or we imagine and remember something that has happened that made us feel good you know we can still get access to those feelings and you know fundamentally that's neurochemistry um which is what you're asking you know we do get access to it but it's not the same as going out and getting that face-to-face eye-to-eye contact that way that we're used to mm. Thanks for that. I really wanted to know how that was kind of operating because I've been really reluctant to use Zoom, but I'm also lucky that I live in a house with three other people. So I feel quite socially full often. Um, But, you know, I just know other people out there may have similar questions around that. Yeah, I mean, I think for people that are isolating alone, I would definitely encourage them to use these platforms as much as they want to, you know, to have conversations, feel connected, talk about things that make them happy, talk about their fears, um, just stay connected in any way. But for those of us who are fortunate enough to be isolating with other people, hopefully loved ones, um, you know, it's very easy to, to fill that cup. We don't actually need that much stimulation as we've been brought up thinking that we constantly you know have this need that can't be satiated by constant external variation and stimulation you know if anything it's actually the opposite and um we can very much be satisfied and satiated by you know a much more sort of insular life with with loved ones with nature with connection to to ourselves um and going inward you know, can also be a very beautiful process for people. Mm. And just on that note as well, you know, um, a lockdown and, and mental illness and people feeling, you know, isolated by themselves. What are the impacts of, of being in nature or getting vitamin D? Like how, how do these help to contribute to maybe um, preventing mental illness from occurring or, or, or depression? Do you, would you encourage something like that? Yes, absolutely. I'm very much a nature advocate. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty obvious to us as humans, we are 
of the earth we are interconnected with nature we are nature you know there's no differentiation we we are part of nature and so we are hardwired to be in nature our eyes are meant to see the morning sky when we wake up our eyes are meant to see the red tinge of the starlight before we go to sleep you know it's good for us to see green it calms us evolutionary there's you know there's an evolutionary uh, reason for that because we know that there's going to be produce and we're going to be kept you know alive and eating um, looking out and seeing expansiveness it's just good for us to be in nature so whether you've got a full beautiful you know nature reserve on your property if you're lucky enough or if you have a tiny little garden with a little plant in the sky you know i would definitely definitely recommend utilizing that and being with that because it's something that's always going to make you feel good and it's something that we need for our overall well-being I completely agree. I wanted to briefly touch on to dealing with emotions. I know this is a big topic for you in your work and helping guide people um, through this space because it's, you know, we, emotions are a complex part of being a human being for sure. And often I think when we don't have the tools or the awareness to understand how to navigate them, they can lead to um, mental illness, suppression, even things like domestic violence, everything we've kind of referenced in the show. Um, what are your thoughts and feelings around, around this? Well, what, what, why do you think it's super important to have access to this information and for you, know, you to be really helping guide people through this space with dealing with emotions? Yeah, well, I guess the first thing to really consider, and um, it's something that I often give workshops in, and I love doing it, and I even gave one recently at your returning festival, Ella, and that was beautiful. Um, the first question that we really need to ask ourselves is, you know, what are emotions? And I guess, you know, there's many different ways to answer that question. There's a lot of variation with, with how we can actually answer that question. But for me, what resonates the most and what's most helpful in my work with people and with myself is fundamentally emotions are body sensations. So emotions can be associated with experiences and with thoughts, but essentially we experience them as a very specific set of sensations that we can locate in our body. So if we think about, you know, we've been talking about anxiety. So what does anxiety feel like? You know, where do you feel it in your body and what does it feel like? And often what we find is there are some pretty universal responses to that. So, you know, it feels like a drop in my stomach or it feels like a tightness in my chest and a constriction in my throat and it feels like I can't get a deep breath so it feels like a constricting you know so that's a very specific set of sensations that we can actually locate and describe and you know you can go through the list of any emotions and and do this process so you know what does joy feel like you know, it feels like an expansiveness in my heart and it feels light and sparkly or however you describe it, you know, sadness. It feels like a pulling down, a heaviness, a weight. 
and you know anger feels like heat sort of rising and looking for expression so you know we can go through these different emotions and we can actually talk about how do they feel where do i feel them so fundamentally what we have to remember is an emotion is actually a sensation or a set of sensations localized in our body so when we remember that um, you know the practices that we can do um, you know actually then start to focus on well how can I just be with this sensation and I think a really important point to touch on and I mean this is a whole workshop in itself but I'm just trying to move through some of the content quickly to explain like dot points but a good thing to remember is that you know as humans again going back to evolution you know we were evolved we're designed to um, seek pleasure and avoid pain and the reason for that is for survival you know it's a function that's innate within us that makes sure that we're not going to run onto oncoming traffic because we know that that's going to be painful so we don't do it so generally speaking we seek pleasure we avoid pain so it's a good thing it keeps us alive physically when it starts to become a problem is when we apply this same structure to our emotions because when we think about some of the harder emotions anxiety sadness anger envy what we can realize when we start to think about these as body sensations is they're quite unpleasant like it doesn't feel good to feel heavy weight pulling you down and it doesn't feel good to be so constricted that you can't get a deep breath. So it's actually what we classify as pain, it's discomfort. So our natural instinct is to avoid it, which makes sense because that's how we're designed and that's actually good for us, you know, in terms of evolution. But again, when it comes to it, what we have to realize is that these emotions, these sensations, even though they are uncomfortable, they're not actually going to kill us. So there's no need to avoid them. Mm. So what we have to learn to do is actually go against our innate wiring, which is avoid and learn to actually be with the pain, the discomfort. And this can have amazing effects on the way that we live because if we think about some of the ways in which we might go about trying to avoid these emotions these sensations we can think about you know ways that we disconnect from our bodies so you know all of these kinds of toxic behaviors like drug and alcohol in excess um numbing via technology um you know, all kind, even, even, even the point of just calling a friend or watching a movie so that we don't have to feel what we're feeling. You know, it's so common. It's so universal. Mm. But what happens is when we avoid it, it actually stays there and starts to manifest in different ways. So the best thing we can do is learn to bypass this tendency to avoid and actually learn to be with the feeling. And then what we usually find is the feeling can have expression within us and then it changes into something else and it passes through and we can continue on with our lives. 
Oli, I would love to have you back on another show to dive deeper into that because I really, I think that's a really powerful tool that people could use and um, gain some more awareness. But unfortunately, we're coming close towards the end of our, our time together. Mm. But I do have one question for you. Sure. So this is a question that I ask everybody that comes on the show. Um, so... Uh, the show being called it takes courage to tell the truth and really what I'm trying to do is find out the truth like you're talking about how to deal emotions that we're not necessarily taught um, as human beings and how to operate in this body with these mind with these souls so for you on your journey um, what has been the biggest truth that you've learned in this human experience wow that's a really big question the biggest truth that I've learned in this human journey, I guess for me, what comes initially as a response to that is just, you know, really that we just can't know anything because fundamentally we just have no idea what's actually beyond what we think we know. So what we, what is, conscious what we think we know about ourselves and about the world is as you said before just the tip of the iceberg and there is so much buried beneath that and it's just such an exciting process to be able to dive into that and just swim around and explore and have the space and trust and opportunity to do that and to be held and accepted and not shamed for whatever comes up to allow expression for ourselves and for others um, is a really beautiful journey because it helps us to to actually bring more and more and more up into the surface of what's what's beneath but ultimately you know there's so much that we don't know and there's so much that we can't know and just really I guess surrendering more and more to the mystery of reality and the universe for me has been the biggest truth that I can think of. Mm, I love that. Thank you, Oli. Um, for people who want to connect with you, um, what are the best ways that they can get in contact with you? Yeah. So um, for people that are living in and around Mullumbimby, um, they can get in touch with me and request sessions via um, Mullumbimby psychology. Um, for anyone else, so if you are outside the Byron Shire um, in a different state or country, um, I have a website now, which I just recently made. So it's just orlymillerpsychology.com and my contact details are on there and you can get in touch through that. Awesome. Awesome, Orly. I'd love to have you back on the show maybe in a couple of months and we can dive a little bit deeper into dealing with emotions and talk a little bit more about your work. And um, thank you so much for just supporting people and doing this work. It's really needed and, and your holistic approach is um, it's really beautiful and I think really, really um, valid in this time where people need to look at the bigger picture of everything, not just a surface level. Thank you, Ella.